Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And joining me today to discuss gasoline shortages in the wake of the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack is Dr. Peter Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson is an assistant professor of economics at Ottawa University and the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research at the Gortney Institute. He received his PhD in economics from George Mason University and obtained his BS from Southeast Missouri State University. His research interests is at the intersection of political economy, development economics, and population economics. Dr. Jacobson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I'm very excited to be here. So as our listeners probably know, on May 7th, the Colonial Pipeline had to stop operations uh, in order to contain the effects of a cyber attack. And in the wake of the shutdown, obviously the national gasoline price spiked, and uh, some areas were experiencing gasoline shortages. You recently wrote an op-ed for the Foundation for Economic Education titled Why Politicians, Not Hackers, Are to Blame for the Gasoline Shortage, uh, where you pointed out that in a lot of the cases where we were seeing shortages of gasoline, um, these states or either the local municipalities had uh, anti-price gouging laws in effect. And you pointed to that as actually one of the main reasons. Um, So just to start, can you explain how price gouging laws cause shortages. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So one of the the key pieces of the article uh, is what I was trying to do is point out to, you know, normal uh, everyday people who haven't studied economics necessarily, that there are all sorts of things that cause resources to become more scarce, right? Every day you could have shocks to supply. In other words, you could have natural occurrences, uh, even hacker attacks aside, just natural disasters could lower the amount of stuff available. That happens all the time. Uh, but what you what is unique about the situation with oil and gas is that there are a lot of laws uh, that prevent the natural response. And so the natural response when there's less of something is that businesses will increase the price uh, because that allows them to Uh, both get more of the good itself because they can compete for that good. Uh, And it also allows customers to signal, hey, I really badly need this. And so I'm willing to pay a higher price for it. Essentially, when a resource becomes more scarce, people need to economize it more. Uh, They they need to be more careful with how they use it. Uh, And so price gouging laws essentially prevents uh, the market from doing this. They prevent the market from raising prices. And so they're laws and they vary by state and by region and, you know, how often they come into effect. Uh, but essentially what happens is there is some cap to how much you can e- increase the price. You can only increase the price 2% or 5% or 10%. And so if prices can't rise, that means both it's not worth it for businesses to go out and spend more money in order to bring more resources in, in this case, gas stations getting more oil. And also customers don't have any method or any uh, you know clear method where they can signal the urgency with which they need gas. And so this causes shortages. In other words, the quantity of gasoline people want is greater than the quantity of gasoline that gas stations are willing to sell. Yeah, so I think the key thing here is the information that consumers receive. Um, I know uh, there's an economist, Art Cardin, who likes to call these price gouging laws uh, knowledge embargoes, basically. That's Uh, exactly right, yeah. And that's sort of what you're touching on there is that people are getting the wrong information about the scarcity of, uh, or I guess the the, uh, the amount of gasoline that's available. Yeah, one way you can think about prices is you can think of it as just like a cell phone. It's a communication, or sorry, it's a technology for communication. That is when a person 
offers to pay a price and they actually follow through on it, they're communicating a very unique piece of knowledge that is hard to communicate any other way. You guys, I, I can say with my language, I value gasoline a lot, but it's a much different thing. You know, talk can be cheap. It's a much different thing for me to buy it. And so prices are a form of technology which communicate. That's certainly one of the things that prices are. Yeah, and price gouging laws seem to be very popular, especially during emergencies. Unfortunately, you know, what you're sort of point, pointing out here is that there's unintended consequences to uh, those laws. Is, is it just lack of economic knowledge that, you know, people are so willing to just put sort of the price system uh, on hold at times of emergencies? Or what explains sort of the popularity of price gouging laws uh, and then in times of emergency, it seems like it's the exact time that you would want the, mo the best and most accurate information being supplied to people in the market. So, so is it the case that during emergencies, uh, is that actually the worst time for price gouging laws? Yeah, so uh, both good questions. The first one's a little bit, I'd say the more difficult one. It's really hard to parse out and know uh, why it is that price gouging laws tend to be popular. I think certainly part of it is, is the knowledge aspect. Uh, that people don't really understand what the role of prices is and making sure that we have enough of everything. That's one piece. Uh, you know, the, and there could also be some people who, uh, even though it hurts other people who benefit from price gouging laws, this is another possibility. And so, for example, if you have a lot of time on your hands, but not a lot of money, uh, you might actually prefer to wait in line for gas rather than pay more for it. And so if you're like someone who wants to be like a leisure driver and you want to just go out for a drive, roll down your windows, maybe sitting in line is not that bad. Uh, whereas if you're someone who is trying to, in an emergency, visit a relative and you need to get in the car and drive, get there quickly and fill up your tank of gas, uh, you know, you're not going to want to sit and wait in line. And so when policies like this are passed, uh, some people could benefit the leisure driver at the expense of other people who can't pay the higher prices. So that's a possibility. Uh, it's also possible uh, in some cases that uh, by lobbying for price control laws in different industries, uh, that some industry, some uh, alternative energy sources could get a leg up. I don't think that that's necessarily what's going on here, but that's another explanation. I think by and large, uh, you know, the, the biggest solution to the, the price gouging law problem would be if more people understood uh, what the role of prices was, what the role of prices were, and the communication that it provides, I think there would be a lot less support for these things. So I think I do agree with you that that's where most of the knowledge rests. And uh, for the second question, um, I, I do think that, uh, you know, emergencies are the times that we, we need to be able to communicate this information uh, the most. And actually, you know, uh, emergencies are also the times where we need to be able to rely on our plans the most. And so we have a lot of contingencies that we make for when times are bad during emergencies. And so a contingency would be something like, well, what's my budget in the case of an emergency? And, you know, your, your budget, you can't account for the fact that, you know, in the future, some arbitrary law might be passed that's going to affect your ability to buy or sell things. And so not only uh, does, is information and communication more important in a crisis, uh, your plans become very important. And when uh, legislation is passed, it sort of ruins or disrupts the plans of individuals. That's another good point. So this situation obviously harkens back to the 1970s. There were a lot of articles that I read and people talking on the news and stuff about sort of reliving the experience of the, of the 1970s with uh, the gas lines back then. And it was a similar situation where there were price ceilings put on, on gasoline. And uh, something that you pointed out in your article was that there was actually a natural experiment that went on there where uh, that wasn't the case in Germany. So um, if you could just talk a little bit about the history there and then 
um, how there were different outcomes in the U.S. and Germany um, back then when there was a similar situation. Yeah, so when I was writing this article, uh, I didn't initially have any conversation of the history or the 70s in there. Actually, uh, you know, the editor at, at Fee, Dan Sanchez, recommended to me, hey, you should look at a little bit of the history. And I thought, you know, it'd be cool for a Fee article is if I looked at some of the things that were going on in the Freeman at the time, which was a, a magazine that was widely distributed by the Foundation for Economic Education. And so I looked and I found this cool article by Milton Friedman, a great economic communicator. Uh, you know, it made me very envious reading it because of my first thought when I was reading it is I'll never be able to communicate it as well as he did. Uh, but what Friedman pointed out is when politicians in the U.S., as you pointed out, when politicians in the U.S., especially Richard Nixon, uh, passed these price control laws, that there were other countries that didn't. And so Germany was the example Friedman gave. And in Germany, they didn't pass the price control laws. Uh, but, you know, the, the result of that was exactly what, you know, economic theory would, would predict, which is that prices increased. And so people had to spend more at the pumps, but they didn't have the long lines that were happening in the U.S., the lines that go on for blocks. And you see the pictures in history class now that didn't happen in Germany. You know, so that's exactly what economic theory tells us is that, you know, uh, a decrease in supply will cause resources to be more scarce, no matter what your legislative policy is, but your policy can make something become a shortage or not. It can make you wait in line or not. And that's what we saw in Germany in the 1970s. Yeah, one of the things that I found that was interesting in this particular episode was that in a lot of cases, the uh, gouging laws were in effect from states of emergency that were declared, not because of the pipeline being shut down, but uh, because of uh, obviously, the COVID pandemic, uh, a lot of states had declared a state of emergency from that. And I uh, wonder if you just have anything to say about, you know, that sort of an intervention in the market that took place in response to a separate crisis. And here we have the possibility of where that intervention is sort of lingering around and making uh, more problems for sort of a new challenge that the, uh, that people in the market are facing there. Yeah, this actually sounds like a, a classic example of, uh, uh, well, it's it's first off an unintended consequence, or at least you would think, you know, when we passed the various COVID price gouging laws in the state, I doubt it was the politician's intention that later it would have an effect on gasoline prices. That might, you know, they, they might have thought of that as a good thing, uh, that later down the line that would happen, but it was, certainly wasn't intended. And it's a good example of uh, Dr. Robert Higgs's ratchet effect. And so the ratchet effect is the idea that, you know, when a crisis happens, like, you know, coronavirus outbreak, the pandemic, uh, a lot of new laws and will be passed, new agencies will be created, uh, that once the crisis is over, they will fight to persist. And so either the laws will be too hard to overturn or the agencies will have sort of nested, uh, so it's hard to get rid of them. And so, you know, I, I see this as really a manifestation of the ratchet effects, that coronavirus happens new laws were passed and now we're seeing the, you know, the negative fruits of those new laws, the unintended fruits of those new laws uh, causing us to wait in line for gasoline on the East Coast. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely uh, one of the, the fruits of policy uh, in a crisis that just kind of continues to stick, stick around and it gets ratcheted up. And for our listeners, our uh, founder and CEO, Robert Bradley has a paper coming out where he's looking at uh, the ratchet effect throughout COVID and looking at different different interventions that have taken place in energy markets uh, from this time. And uh, he kind of traces back some history going back to the 1970s as well and during that energy crisis. So um, that's something for our listeners to keep an eye out for. I believe it's coming out in the next month or so. I want to shift our focus to another recent article that you've published with Fee. Um, it takes us a little bit away from energy, but I think our listeners would still be interested in uh, to do with population and environmental issues. 
The title of the article is, Is Having Children in 2021 Really Environmental Vandalism? And in that, you respond to a recent British Vogue article that asks the question, is having a baby in 2021 uh, pure environmental vandalism? And uh, it's long been fashionable for people to think that population growth leads to a decaying environment. Uh, but you want to push back at that. So could you explain why more children doesn't necessarily mean uh, a worse environment? Yeah, absolutely. And so I, you know, I borrow heavily here from a lot of great thinkers, uh, Simon Kuznets being one, Julian Simon being another. Uh, but essentially, the, the logic uh, that I try to put forward in my article is that uh, people aren't just mouths, and they're not just, you know, uh, people with problems, but they're actually minds enhanced too. And so people may create problems, a larger amount of people might stress the resources that you have, but also that larger amount of people are equipped with intelligent solutions to those problems and they're creative, you know, we're not just these homogenous blobs of labor who, you know, accept for our whole lives, the first job that we get and we, you know, do exactly everything as our ancestors did, we create new things, we, cre we create new organizations, uh, new technologies. And those new technologies actually help us make, you know, resources more abundant. This has happened with all sorts of energy related resources, for example, oil and gas, you know, uh, how many times have we heard the term peak oil uh, over the last, you know, 100 years, and we, we've never actually been at peak oil. And that's because people are increasingly finding new ways to, to harvest oil and to make it more clean and all these things. Yes, yeah, so you touched on two names there, uh, Simon Kuznets and uh, Julian Simon. Uh, We've discussed the Kuznets curve on the podcast before, I think, on our Earth Day podcast just a few episodes ago. But if you could just refresh our lis listeners of what the theory is there as it's applied to sort of environmental issues, um, I think it's a really important uh, point for um, people who are proponents of sort of uh, free markets or um, have a classical liberal perspective on energy and environmental issues to really understand. Yeah, Alex, uh, I'm glad you've talked about the Kuznets curve before in the past. It's something more people that sh should know about. My one sentence explanation of the Kuznets curve, and then I'll do a little more in detail. My one sentence explanation is that clean air, clean water, clean environments are a luxury. Uh, so the multiple sentence uh, explanation is that as countries develop, they have to use more and more technology that involves pollution. G generating energy, uh, you know, it, it tends to be that the abundant ways to generate energy, the, the cheaper ways to generate en energy cause some sort of pollution, whether it's, you know, greenhouse gases or particulate matter or any of these sorts of things. But as countries develop more and more, they can create technologies which allow them to generate more energy more cleanly. And so this involves, you know, not burning so much, for example, wood or coal or things that develop a lot of pollution that really hurts people's lungs. And instead of focusing on other energies like, you know, natural gas or things like that, which, you know, don't put out that particular matter or, you know, other forms of, you know, burning the same uh, energy, but finding better ways to clean the air as it comes out or something like that. And so as countries get rich, you tend to find that they decrease the amount of pollution. As countries, uh, you know, if countries that are very poor have a very low amount of pollution because they're not generating much energy. And so the curve is that as you develop, you start to generate more pollution, uh, but at some point of development, you can afford the luxury of no pollution and you start to have less. And so rich countries tend to have very little pollution, poor countries have very little pollution, developing countries tend to produce a lot. And so that's the Kuznets curve. And something you touched on there, obviously, this has important implications for developing countries. Um, we see places like China and India right now where uh, pollution might be going up, um, air pollution in particular. And uh, it might be the case that uh, they're just in this stage where 
it makes more sense for them to use the cheaper energy resources now that help them move along that sort of stage of development and grow their wealth and move to a point where where they can afford the luxury of having a clean environment. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, it, it's theoretically possible maybe that countries could develop without the pollution, but we don't empirically see it. And so that's that causes a big concern that if we try to prevent these countries from polluting certain amounts, it actually might not be possible for them to develop just given the state of the world. Uh, so, so when you do that, you do it at kind of a great peril to the people in those countries, for sure. Yeah, so the other name that you mentioned there was Julian Simon, and uh, just personally, his ideas have been a big influence on me. It was one of the reasons I came to work at IER was being introduced to him. Um, wonder if you could just talk a little bit about Julian Simon, um, his ideas, and you know, he he stressed uh, the creativity of individuals and creativity of uh, the human mind, and um, just how that plays a role in sort of development and environmental issues. So Julian Simon, uh, you know, he, when he would tell his story, and, and sadly, Julian Simon passed away at, at a young, relatively young age, you know, uh, in the late 1990s. But when he would tell his story, he was an economist, and he, he would confess that when he began, he, he was a, what he called a typical Malthusian, uh, someone following after Thomas Malthus, who believed that uh, essentially more people cause more problems and you know eventually we were, we were going to run out of resources if people you know kept growing and, and growing in population over time but you know uh, Simon tells the story that he was going by some uh, post-war monuments and he was looking at all the names on them and he thought you know how many great creative people uh, and great ideas were lost in this terrible tragedy and he realized that you know p- people actually aren't just just mouths to feed as I mentioned earlier but they're actually uh, creative individuals. And so Simon had sort of this road to Damascus moment where he changed his mind on population. That's always how he, he told the story. And so when he changed his mind on population, he started to look at the research and he, he found Simon Kuznets uh, showed that there was no negative effect on population. So that's, a, that's a, another important contribution of Kuznets. And he also found another uh, person who worked in, in economics, Esther Bosrup, was another person who kind of challenged the paradigm that people were sort of a, a tax on the environment or something like that. Uh, but besides that, there weren't many voices saying that population growth is good. And so Simon from, you know, the early 70s up until his death in the 90s, uh, spent a lot of his time and work showing with great detail, both theoretically and empirically, how as you add more people, you add more ideas, and those ideas actually improve the environments. They improve things like resource availability. And so Simon uh, is often described as, in, in a famous Wired article, described as a doomslayer. Uh, he often pointed out how these doomsday theories uh, are not, in fact, true. And if you look at the data, uh, people solve problems more than they create them. So I think one of the questions that comes out of that then is, should we actually be having more children if uh, if individual minds mean more creativity and uh, more chances and opportunities of creating new ways of doing things? Uh, I'm not suggesting that you know we go out and you know force <laughs> everyone to have more kids, yeah. but um, it, it certainly seems to turn the uh, the argument in the other direction, right? Yeah, a- absolutely. And I, I would say, and so one thing Simon was clear about, and I agree with him fully here, is that people should have the number of kids that they want to. Uh, but there are some things in the way of that. And so first off, attitudes toward children, which the British Vogue article uh, kind of fosters and which I which drove me to frustration to write the article, is that a lot of times people see children as like some sort of tax on the environment or something like that. And that's just not true. And so if a person elects not to have kids because they're afraid of that, uh, I think that's a great shame. Um, And then also a lot of government policies uh, 
you know, the car seat tax being one, regulations that make it hard to have like a van, for example, uh, really hurt people's ability to have children. And so policies like that, I think, really uh, lead us in a bad direction of people having less kids than they would otherwise. Uh, those kids could be helpful, creative people in the line of Simon. Yeah, there is a sort of bizarre culture of, uh, I don't want to say demonizing, but uh, like you said, just uh, making the idea of having children like, seem like not such a good idea. And I've seen it go as far as where children have been described as negative externalities in a paper once, which uh, was certainly sort of shocking and I thought kind of extreme. But it's good to know that there's people out there working on uh, population issues and uh moving Julian Simon's work forward. I th think a lot of the work that's being done at the Gortney Institute where you're associated is certainly in line with that. Uh, do you want to just talk a little bit about your guys' work there and where people can go to find your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Gortney Institute here is named after the great economist Jim Gortney, who uh, created what's known today as the Economic Freedom Index. And the Economic Freedom Index basically shows uh, it's, it's in the name that economic freedom, the ease of doing business, uh, tends to be associated with economic development. Richer countries tend to be countries with more economic freedom. Uh, and there's lots of, even though the index itself is purely empirical, there's lots of causal mechanisms uh, that kind of explain why that would be the case. Basically that free institutions are very important for development. And so Jim Gordney was an alumni or, or graduated from uh, Ottawa University, which is where I teach. And so the institute was named in his honor. And the Gortney Institute, we, we try to look at uh, the intersection of uh, freedom, justice, and flourishing. And so we're, we're interested in how, uh, you know, the, the free institutions uh, and, and, you know, with a, a proper respect for, for human dignity lead to human flourishing. Uh, and so a lot of our work at the Gortney Institute uh, involves, you know, uh, research. So I, I do some research myself. Uh, on this intersection and I research population growth uh, and uh, entrepreneurship. We also have some, some uh, focus on trying to, to educate. And so we, we provide outreach opportunities for the community. We, we try, try to reach out and explain the importance of economic freedom uh, as well as you know, to some educational opportunities for high school students. And if you, you wanna find out more about the, the Gortney Institute, uh, if you go to Ottawa's website, uh, ottawa.edu, and you scroll down uh, at the bottom of the page, there will be uh, in, in the, the university center section, there will be a place where you can click on the Gortney Institute. And we also have a Twitter, uh, the memorable handle at 123povertysucks, uh, because of course we, we dislike poverty very much. And so you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, and we also have a Facebook and other pages if you search uh, the, the Gortney Institute. And so uh, that our main focus is on freedom uh, and human flourishing. Uh, with respect to, to providing proper justice for everyone. And uh, the last place I'd say people can look is for our, our Faith and Economics podcast, where we look at the, the intersection of uh, faith and how that uh, kind of lends itself to uh, certain economic ideas that, you know, uh, our, our faith here at Ottawa University, we're, we're a Christian university, uh, and, and we think that an important part of Christianity is uh, supporting policies that will lead to people being better off rather than worse off. And so we do a podcast on that. Yeah, I was just going to mention the podcast, actually. I'm a big fan. I listen to just about every episode, I th think, now. So uh, I highly recommend our listeners go check that out as well. And uh, I think this is a good place to leave it. My, uh, my guest today has been Dr. Peter Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate it.